that's kind of the lesson I've learned in self-acceptance. Everybody is a function. And maybe it's even bigger than we think it is, right? And being able to say, okay, I'm going to find what that is for me. Hi, welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. My name is Gabriella Denry, MD, one of the lead coaches at DocWorking.com. And thank you for joining us today. We actually have a, a special edition of the podcast today. This is in response to one of our listeners who had a request. And so we're going to talk about resolving guilt with leaving medicine. So that's the topic of our podcast today. And I've invited the person who frankly knows me the best in the entire world to have a discussion about this today. And so I'm so excited to introduce to you Gina Jefferson, who is a licensed clinical social worker, the master's in education, interfaith minister, and who also happens to be my spouse. And so <laughs> welcome, Gina, to the Doc Working Podcast, and thank you for being my interviewer. <laughs> thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. This is going to be fun. It sure is. <laughs> and this is, as I said, one of the listeners who responded to one of our podcasts called Three Things I Wish I Knew when I was talking about some of the lessons I learned along the way that, you know, I know now that I wish I knew back then, but it's good that I learned them, right? And one of the things was with the first lesson, I'd mentioned that it helped me in releasing some of the guilt I felt with leaving medicine. And that caught our listener's ear. And so she mm -hmm. wanted to know more about that. And so that's mm -hmm. what we're addressing today. So I'm going to pass the mic back to you, Gina, and mm -hmm. let you take it. Okay. So when you were talking about guilt in leaving clinical medicine, tell us a little bit more about how that topic came up? Well, you know, I burnt out. I really did. I was in primary care medicine. My specialty was internal medicine. And I did that for seven years, but I can say that really the burnout process for me, it was started in residency and it got kind of carried forward and it kind of piled on and piled on and piled on. And I just got to the point where I knew I had to make a change if I wanted to live a different kind of life. Now, did it mean leaving medicine? For some people, it doesn't, but for me, it did. Uh, leaving mm -hmm. clinical medicine, it did. And I really got to the point where I really, to save my own life, I had to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And so that's what kind of pushed me out of medicine. But I have to say that it wasn't just a push, that was a pull. And so on the other hand, I'm also a musician and a composer. And I've been that my entire life, almost as long, if not as long as I've wanted to be a doctor. And mm -hmm. so there came a point where I was starting to perform more and I was learning about African drumming and I was teaching and that was pulling me out. I really, really wanted to pursue that more full time. And I figured, you know, if it's not now, when? And so there were those two kind of competing reasons why, well, not competing, I guess they complemented each other. Why right, it was, right, because it, it was time to leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, music is healing also, right? And I know that you felt called to medicine. Yeah. to practice medicine. So tell me a little bit about that calling and what happened with it in the midst of the burnout. Well, you know, that calling started when I was very, very young. I grew up in a family of doctors. Mom is a doc, I was a doc, dad was a doc, and they always served. They, they always were in a capacity of service. So my father was, for example, always involved in for many, many, many years, and most of his practice years involved in projects to send medical equipment and hospital equipment to Haiti, which is where my family is from. And so he was always involved in all these kinds of charitable activities in addition to his work as a physician. And mom too, mom always served in a very different way. She was always at somebody's bedside, you know, a friend who lost somebody significant in their lives. 
She was always there for them. She was always there in very kind of quieter ways, but she always had other people's well-being at heart and acted on that. And so both my parents were full-time physicians, full-time parents, and at the same time, you know, practice medicine. And so those were my role models that was modeled for me. And so for me, I equated helping people, which is what I wanted to do mm-hmm. with practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. And so that started really, 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 really early. <laughs> really early. I, I remember early. stories <laughs> oh my about God. experiments in the house. Was it you that had a brain in the house? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom was a pathologist. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> For a few years before she switched to psychiatry, she was a pathologist. And so I don't know if I had a question about the brain or one of my siblings did or something happens. And so she said, well, I can bring one home. So we oh, said, gosh. cool. And she did. It was wrapped up in this plastic. And then around the plastic was this green surgical cloth. And so we would kind of look at this brain and then kind of poke it. And and (laughs) like, what is that? Nobody ever cut it, which was good. I'm glad it stayed intact. And eventually she brought it back to the lab. But it's funny. (laughs) It was funny just having this thing around the house. It's like, wow, this is so cool. Just looking at all the the dips and the valleys and the peaks and the, the, you know, the perfect division of the two hemispheres and all this wonderfulness. Yeah. The fact that you thought it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's something. Your father was a neurosurgeon. My father was a neurosurgeon. So we got to talk about these things too. And he kind of showed us a bit of the anatomy of the brain and the different, you know, parts of the cortex and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it was like well this is so cool and at the same time I had this fascination with bones at first I thought I was going to be an orthopedist you see and so you know when there was a celebration I remember one summer my father was planning this really big party and so there was this little goat running around the backyard and so one day there was the goat and it was there for about three days and after three days there was no more goat so Gosh. It ended up what on the dinner to the table. Goat? Oh, the gosh. Goat. <laughs> I didn't witness. I don't know what they did, how they did, but it ended up on the dinner plate. And I know it sounds gross now, but it was actually mom could cook a mean goat. She could. And it was good. And I also remember that, you know, I asked my father, keep some of the bones because I collected the vertebrae and I collected the shoulder blades and wow. I kept all of that. And I was like, well, this is so cool. And I would ask my father about them. And, you know, so it was a way to have that conversation with my parents and kind of build mm-hmm. those bridges with them. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it was just my fascination mm-hmm. and my curiosity. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that you had that in common with your family. That was a way to bond with your family, this whole idea of medicine and helping people through medicine. Mm-hmm. And so... How did you deal with that as you realized you were burning out from medicine? I think I was burning out the thoughts. Oh, my God. I mean, at first, I wasn't really thinking about my parents. And I would like to make sure that it's clear that it took about 10 years to make the decision to leave. It's not something that ever happened overnight. Mm -hmm. And for various reasons, there was a lot of back and forth. And one of them was feeling guilty because I grew up with that obligation and that responsibility to other people. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of kind of the culture of the household. You know, you did for others before you did for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And for me, as I said, medicine equated helping people. And right. that's the way I saw it. And that's how I grew up around it. And so to leave, it was kind of breaking the equation. And at the same time, I knew that I was absolutely exhausted. 
I was exhausted by the procedural stuff, by the administrative stuff, which was not what I thought doctoring was about. Mm. And I was also exhausted by this whole idea. And perhaps because it's my pick of specialties, I picked internal medicine because I enjoy working with adults. I do. I still do. At the same time, back in the day, it was called chronic illness management. Mm. And for me, it's like, well, that's not why I became a doctor. <laughs> I <laughs> thought I was helping people get better. And oh. I didn't want to, you know, chronically manage illness. It didn't make <laughs> sense to me. Like philosophically, it did not make sense to me. Right. Eventually, they changed the lingo to healthcare maintenance. But mm. basically, it's the same thing. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So there was those kinds of pulls, of pushes, the administrative exhaustion. And it's like, but this is not what I signed up for when I said I wanted to, to be a doctor. It's not what I signed up for. And then there was this whole idea of maintaining illness. It just didn't make sense to me. Like I couldn't reconcile with that logically or emotionally in any way, shape or form. So mm -hmm. that wore on my spirit. It did. And over years after year after year after year of health maintenance <laughs> for chronically ill patients, I had my fill. I really did. Wow. Mm -hmm. So was there an avenue available for you to process these feelings of feeling burnt out with your colleagues or supervisors or anything? I mean, again, it's the administration stuff. It's the, the medical records, the electronic record, the, the insurance companies, the prescriptions, the pharmacists, the running around trying to figure everything out. That's what was exhausting. But did I seek support? Is that the question? Yeah. Or was there a process for seeking mm -hmm. support built into, you know, that level of administration? Or did you find your own support? I found my own support and I kind of did it on the down low because I still was personally dealing with the idea that what if somebody finds out that I'm looking for support with my mental wellness and my mm, mental well-being and what <laughs> impact will it have on my career? What impact right. will I have on you know my future if somebody right. finds out? I think one of my biggest inspirations for seeking support, particularly working with a therapist, was one of my mentors in the clinic who was also a pediatrician who had left because of burnout, but she came back. And she was very open about the fact that she was in therapy. I was just absolutely amazed by that. I had never seen a physician talk about being in therapy that openly. Mm, like, and it's like, okay. why are you talking so loud about it? But why? Why not? Mm -hmm. So to me, that was really my inspiration to say, you know what? I can't do this by myself. I can't resolve all that I'm feeling the guilt, the anger, the denial, the resistance to, you know, the trying to reconcile why I'm here, you know, because mm -hmm. it made sense when I was 20 years old, 24 years old in medical school, and even in my first year of residency. But after a while, it just stopped making sense. So I needed help and I needed to admit that. And I at least admitted that to myself. So I went out of network. I didn't even want to know that my healthcare network, which was through my employer, knew that I was in therapy. I asked a friend who she would recommend. And so she recommended someone I worked with actually for almost three years. She was excellent. And I really appreciated her help. So really, I think that dealing with guilt with leaving medicine, because that process started in my latter years as a attending physician. It started before I left. And it really helped a lot with resolving the question, should I stay, should I go? 
And so I appreciated that support, even if it was on the down low. I think it was absolutely important and crucial to recognize that I could not do this by myself. And um, yeah, so Mm -hmm. uh, I'm grateful I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. I can also imagine that a source of guilt might have been you leaving your patients because I know you were working in underserved communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I was. And I made it a point to work in underserved communities. That's always been my mission as a clinician, to work in areas where access to care was not a given. Mm -hmm. And to work with patients who are in need. And I want to be part of that solution. And so that was hard. That was really hard being able to say, well, I'm leaving these patients behind. Yes, logically, they're going to be assigned another physician. And that physician is going to bear the brunt or those physicians are going to have to take on an extra load, which was also part of the guilt. And I'm choosing a different path. I don't know if they'll hire somebody after me. They may or may not, depending Mm. on what the budgetary arguments may be. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And at the same time, you know, is the pull strong enough for me to say, I got to live my life. Mm -hmm. I just do. Because if I get to live my life, then I think I would have a greater impact on people than if I'm miserable and unhappy and mm-hmm. uh, entertaining suicidal ideations, which is exactly what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was a tough decision that I, I had to I had to make. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is years of dissatisfaction at work, you know, and I'm sure there were a lot of good things that happened as well, but mm-hmm. I heard you say it was back and forth, back and forth. And then, okay, finally you make the decision finally you're leaving. What are people saying? Because <laughs> I can imagine your parents freaking out. <laughs> well, a Haitian mama and a Haitian papa. Who was well, like, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it says something to family status as Haitian family, a family of color. It says something about, you know, the status that we've brought ourselves to. And now you're leaving. Oh my so, God, are you kidding? And I'm that. supposed to tell my parents that I'm leaving to become a drummer? I mean, come <laughs> on now. That has to be a parent's exactly. worst nightmare. Worst nightmare, yes. Haitian <laughs> <laughs> mama and Haitian mama's worst nightmare. But by that time, I was 40 years old or, or, you know, on the eve of my 40th birthday. And so initially, because I chickened out, I really did. I told them I was on sabbatical. Taking <laughs> a break, I'm on sabbatical. You know, the sabbatical. And, you know, but you know, my siblings knew, and I have five siblings, so somebody opened their mouths. Okay. I have no uh-huh. doubt. And mm-hmm. at one point, it's my father's wife, my father's wife, because um, my parents, my my father remarried. They were divorced at one point. My father, I just want to clarify that my father's second wife, right? Who noticed? She said, "Look." And when I was visiting home one time, yeah, Brianna, something is different about you. See, that's what she told me. Uh-huh. And I said, well, what's that? You look happy. And I said, oh, boy. <laughs> and, then, and then she she went to my dad and said, but Gabrielle looks happy. Something is different about her. And I heard her say that. So eventually I did let them know. But I said it in a very particular way. I went to my dad first and I told him, and I said, you know, what I really want from you now are your words of support and encouragement because I have enough worry of my own and enough fears of my own, and Mm. I don't need yours too. So please, if you can't say anything good, then please keep it to yourself or talk to my siblings about it, but not to me. 
And I made the same request of my mother. I was very wow. respectful, very polite, but I made my boundary very clear because I knew my mom is a worrywart, was a worrywart, professional worrywart. And I know dad didn't say much, but I know he worried too. And, you know, I kept telling me, you know, it's like, I'm a 40 year old woman. I'm grown and I will be fine. I will be fine. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, please, what I want from you are words of encouragement. I just need your encouragement. Mm -hmm. And you know what happened? And that's the beauty about this and making it clear to them as to what I wanted from them, not just what I didn't want, but what I wanted from them is that they actually respected it and they Mm -hmm. did it. There came a point where, you know, we were performing full time and you and I were in Grace Drums, which was the name of the group at the time. And I would send them the DVDs of the performance and dad would be calling me, say, I saw it. And I saw it like three times. And okay, for the next performance, this is what you do. Don't forget this. Make sure you do that. You know, that's so all he's giving me tips about what to do on stage. He's not a performer. He's a surgeon. But he was so excited about it. And then my mother's, her boyfriend, I guess, is that what you would call him? And, you know, she was with him for many, many years. He said, oh, she watched it like multiple, multiple times. And she was smiling. And she's so proud of you. And, you know... Uh, mom was having health challenges at the time. And so she wasn't verbalizing that, but, you know, it was good to hear. And that feedback was amazing and really, really important. And just so gratifying wow. that they were able to put their worries aside, honor my request and support me mm-hmm. in the way I asked them to support. So I think that that really would be the second thing about releasing guilt was really honoring what it is I needed and asking for it, mm-hmm. which was huge. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the habit of asking them for anything really because I didn't want to impose. They did so much for me already, mm-hmm. but that was important, especially when looking at a life transition like that and such a big life transition, support mm-hmm. is important, really. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you had your own support by going to therapy and doing the things that you needed to do to take care of yourself so you can get to the point of knowing what you needed and mm-hmm. setting those clear boundaries. Because it sounds like you were very courageous in being able to do that. But also it sounds like you had some support in to get to that point. Because when you said you said to them, it's going to be okay, you know, I thought, I wonder if you really knew that at that time, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think that's but, a very strong and insightful observation because no, I did not know that at that time. I was kind of kind of saying to convince myself and to convince mm-hmm. them, but I know I had no clue what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and what did other people say? Like, what did maybe even your colleagues or just other people say? How did they react? Interestingly enough, physicians were supportive for the most part. I didn't tell everybody, like everybody, but Mm -hmm. when I informed people that I had to inform, well, where else are you going to practice so we can make sure we send your patients in that direction? And the answer is, I'm not practicing anymore. I'm complete. And so physicians were like, oh, wow, congratulations. Or better yet, I wish it was me. Wow. I got that a lot. I wish it was me. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that was shocking. Mm. That was truly, truly shocking. Mm. I don't have any other skills. You know, can't say that drumming was really a marketable skill, <laughs> but that was how I decided to go. But uh, I don't have any skills. You know, I don't know what else I would do. Or oh wow, you're lucky. And, and wow, you know, I wish it was me. Those were the kinds of responses I got from wow. the physicians. Some I knew, some I didn't know. But that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how it worked out. Mm-hmm. So you got you know support from your parents. You got support from colleagues. So why the guilt? 
<laughs> I know it. I mean, everything sounds great. Um, I think there were other encounters that reminded me that that was a tough decision to make. Because mm -hmm. so at one point after I left, my legs are still wobbly. I'm not sure what I'm doing next. Mm -hmm. And so that uncertainty was added to the guilt because it's like, okay, what did I do? What did I get myself into? Did right. I make the right decision? Oh, right. is it still time to go back? No, I don't want to go back. Now what? I mean, <laughs> yeah, just added to the confusion added to the guilt, added to feeling, did I really do the right thing? Mm. And then there were these kind of funny encounters that kind of added to the confusion because I was looking for a financial advisor after I left. And so I interviewed several people, I, you know, and there was this one person who was recommended by a friend of mine and I went to see him. And so, you know, we talked a little bit, introduced each other. And then he asked me, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm retired. And he said, well, retired, you're, you're pretty young for that. And so, yeah, well, I, I didn't have any other vocabulary words to say that, but that's the mm -hmm. word I used at the time. And he said, well, what did you used to do? I said, well, I'm a medical doctor. I practice medicine. Oh, my God. That man bolted out of his chair behind the desk. Whoa. He was red from head to foot. I've never seen a man so red in my life. And he started pacing across the office. You, 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 you. Wow. Wow. You did what? Oh, gosh. You, 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 you quit? I said, yeah, I did. Oh, my God. You could see fumes coming out of his ears. I didn't know what I had from Adam. So, wow. you know, so, you know, what was funny is that, you know, of course, I didn't choose him as my financial advisor. And I was, <laughs> At the same time, it's like, wow, this really triggers something in people. Yeah. It was shocking. I didn't realize that. To me, I was just like, okay, well, it's my life. I made my decision. And yeah, I have my own qualms and worries about it. And I still feel guilty about it. And then here's somebody who's really just enraged by it. And wow. I was shocked. Because when somebody makes a big transition like that, and that's probably the other lesson I learned, it kicks up stuff in other people. In other words, they will react because then that means that maybe they have to look at their own lives, mm -hmm. especially if there's those thoughts of I'm not really happy, but I'm kind of just going through the motions type of thing. Mm -hmm. And then when somebody makes a big jump like that, that means that other people have to kind of, you know, do they examine their life? Do they want to examine their life? I mean, I'm wondering if that's the trigger and it could be. So just mm -hmm. based on that encounter and others like that. I made a very clear decision then when I'm making my life transitions, because I've made others after that, when I'm making my life transitions, I either share it with very few people or I don't share it at all. I keep it to myself, at least for mm. a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that also helped with actually decreasing and resolving and releasing guilt because then I'm not, the guilt is kind of tied to the fear. And did I do the right thing? And so, you know, when I'm eliminating that question by, you know, kind of, limiting who knows and you know who has the privilege of knowing that information because it's a privilege you're that's my intimate decision mm -hmm. it's a privilege to be in that circle of decision then if i limit the number of people that are in that circle then i protect myself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that actually feels safer and the guilt can't go run amok so mm. at least that's my mm -hmm. theory and i'm sticking to it <laughs> Well, at least it seems as if that kind of reaction would 
help you reflect on, you know, where you are with regard to acceptance of your decision? Mm. Do you think? Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And acceptance is probably a big, fat, capital A word Mm. that really encompasses the whole thing about releasing guilt with making a big jump like that. Mm -hmm. Learning to accept myself Mm -hmm. as I am, quirky and all. I mean, I can swear almost fluently in two languages and I have vocabulary in a third. I can say some stuff that nobody will understand and I will never translate. It's fabulous. Fabulous. (laughs) And I'm quirky and I'm creative and I'm curious and I love to learn new things. And, you know, I'm a rhythm master and I love that about, you know, thank you. (laughs) I love that about how I hear and feel music in my own body. It's just absolutely amazing. And I love to be able to write that music and compose that music. It's exciting. And life coaching is an exciting conversation because I get to delve impossibility. That was the difference between life coaching and medicine. In life coaching, I can talk about possibility. What is possible for somebody, regardless of circumstances, even within the circumstances, you know, medicine was all about the circumstances and what was impossible as a result. And so being able to switch that conversation, that's exciting to me. You know, I'm a minister, I'm an ordained minister now. I mean, did I know 10 years ago that I was going to be ordained? No. But that's where my, you know, life carried me and I decided to go with it. And Mm -hmm. it has enriched my life in so many ways. I'm just ecstatic with where I am now. And what I've learned, I think, is one of my favorite Bible passages. And I can't remember the reference specifically. And this has to do with self-acceptance for me, that it talks about the church as God's body. And it says, well, you know, not everyone can be a nose. Not everyone can be an ear. Not everyone can be a foot. You need the nose, the ear, the foot, the mouth, the belly button. In it. I'm kind of exaggerating at this point, but it, that's the whole idea that everybody, as a friend of mine used to say, has their contract with life. Mm-hmm. And so, no, not everybody can be a nose. You know, I get to be a belly button. Hallelujah. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful about that. And so I think my journey outside of medicine kind of helped me define that moving forward. Like, what else can I be in this world? Knowing that nothing that I experienced goes wasted. Nothing I've learned is wasted. It, it all somehow all comes together. And at this point in my life, I can say that all these bits and pieces of me, which I thought were bits and pieces, mm-hmm. you know, physician, life coach, minister, musician, composer, you know, aspiring gourmet cook. I'm doing uh, very well with that one, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you, darling. Uh, <laughs> You know, wife, sister, daughter, you know, friend, et cetera, et cetera, godmother. It's for all of these hats that I wear personally and professionally. Everything is now coming together so beautifully. They're all kind of coalescing in the middle. And that wouldn't happen if I didn't go on that hunt, if you will, for, you know, where am I in, in this body? You know, again, we can't all be noses and we can't all be ears. Somebody's got to be a toe (laughs) in order for the whole body to function, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the lesson I've learned in self-acceptance. Everybody is a function. And maybe it's even bigger than we think it is, right? And being able to say, okay, I'm going to find what that is for me is a big decision. And that helps also in just kind of working with the guilt and alleviating the guilt. So self-acceptance really is a huge piece, huge piece. Mm -hmm. 
So besides the guilt, because I know as a clinician myself, as a psychotherapist, mm-hmm. I know that along with guilt, well, in the process of loss, and you did leave a vision, uh, a title, a career of sorts, you know, you did have a loss. And I know one thing about loss, that guilt is one of the feelings that comes up, but another feeling is grief. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about where you felt the loss the most and what your experience of grief was? Oh, that's a big question. I think that because even 16 years out of leaving medicine, there's still that little, and I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of personal development work, the spiritual work, the therapy. I've worked with life coaches. I've worked with with, with all sorts of wonderful counselors and mentors and people along the way. And so with all of that work, there's still that little vestige of guilt that we're still hanging on for some reason. And it's like, why are you still here after mm. all this time? I'm not going back. It's been 16 years. I have a different life and I have a different way of serving now using everything that I have experienced, you know, and, and which is the beauty about this. Why am I still feeling a little bit of guilt? Mm. And I realized that that's what it was. You know, as we're mourning parents, we lost three parents in the same year in 2019. I lost both of mine. You lost yours. And, you know, really being in that process of grief and allowing the discomfort of it, the annoyance of it, Mm. the joy of it, the the release Mm. of it, the vulnerability of it, Right. I realized that I didn't allow myself to do that with medicine. Mm. That I spent my time denying, stuffing, pushing it away. Oh, get over it. You know, it's done, it's finished. That part of my life is over. I'm done. I've moved on, et cetera, et cetera. Like for years, I was kind of pretending it, it didn't exist, but it was such a massive part of my life, not only in terms of the amount of time dedicated to it, the training, the the training. (laughs) We could talk about that for days, but it was the call. Because as I said, I associated helping people with medicine. And when I left, I really didn't see how that could be replicated anywhere else. I didn't know at the time. And so that whole process of letting go, which is also a grieving process, I didn't allow myself time to be in that luxury of grieving. I just went to the doing. Okay, let's get something done here. Although I had no idea what to do, but let's get something done. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I can only imagine that let's get something done probably was part of what you needed to push you out, right? To keep you... To um, keep me busy, keep me focused, hopefully keep mm -hmm. me focused. But I think having that realization, which actually came very, very recently, Mm -hmm. um, I find that that little piece of guilt that still remained is going away. And mm-hmm. that too is exciting to me. So there was something connected with the grief and the guilt is what you're I saying. Think so. I uh-huh. think so. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful distinction that you've made, you know, that part of the grieving process is to allow for the guilt and part of, you know, the guilt sticking around is because you haven't grieved, you know, so <laughs> it is something that, you know, no one wants to feel too much because mm-hmm. then it, it might look like regret. 
you know, have you or, had any or, regrets? No, not anymore. I did for many, many years, but not anymore. I think that I'm in a place right now, as I said, that all the pieces and parts of me, everything that I love about life are coming mm-hmm. together and they're coalescing beautifully. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't force that, you know, it's nothing that I could have planned, but it's just kind of falling into place. And right. it, it's a powerful, powerful moment and a powerful place to be. And so that, you know, that comes with the next lesson, I guess, is trusting, <laughs> trusting that everything mm. will work out because I can't predict every single detail. Nobody can. Nobody has a crystal ball. You can't foresee what's going to happen. Life is messy. It can be messy and gloriously messy. Grieving is messy, you know, <laughs> and it comes in waves. One day you're fine. The next day you're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> so it, it's a messy process, but it is a glorious process. And I, I finally allowed myself to go through it when it comes to medicine. Now I can appreciate the happy memories. I can appreciate the good times. I can appreciate the laughs. I can appreciate the quirks of some of my patients and some of the most amazing conversations and things that I've learned from them over the years. And, you know, I can appreciate that now. And I did back then, but now more so because it, it, those times were absolutely precious. Yeah. Okay. So self-acceptance, boundaries, trusting the process. How else do you advise clients? When uh, it comes keep it to, to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> As a way of managing guilt, you know, keep not, don't keep the guilt to yourself. On the contrary, seek support. And that would be number one, seek support. Mm-hmm. A, a life coach, a therapist, a, you know, a group of like-minded people. Surround yourself with people who are supportive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, keep those naysayers at bay and make your boundaries clear, which is what I did with my family, particularly with my parents, where, as I said, the professional worry works. I made mm-hmm. it clear of what it is that I'm asking of them, which was words of encouragement and support, and what I did not want from them, which was more worry and fear. Mm-hmm. And I articulated that. I actually said it. And so mm-hmm. that made a big difference, you know, so make your boundaries clear. And sometimes if you're contemplating a big jump, then, you know, you may want to keep that to yourself for a little while. Self-acceptance is key. That would be the other point because it's not possible to beat yourself up and make a move. How are you going to manage both? I mean, I did, I thought I did for a little while, but, you know, I think it's kind of stunted my growth and stunted my progress as I'm still trying to be perfect and do the right thing in the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Kind of old habits from medicine that I carried into music. And it took a while to let go of those habits. So, you know, learning to accept yourself really is probably the first and most important thing of all in any transition. And to allow yourself the beauty, the beauty of grieving the loss, because it is a loss. And once you go through that grieving process, you start appreciating the beauty that it is, you know, that in the end, I didn't really lose anything. I gained everything. And in addition to my years in medicine, that was a big gain as opposed to a big loss. Mm-hmm. At this point, you know, I can say that now today, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like acknowledging the loss, you also at the same time get to acknowledge the, you know, what you're grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And gratitude is also a huge piece of self-acceptance. And being able to break the, the inner critic is really uh, an active practice of gratitude. And there are many ways of doing it. And it's important because the human mind, we go to worry and fear and doubt. And that's kind of the default position for most people, like for 99% probably of the world population, you know. And so 
in order to counter that, you actually have to work at it. You have to make it an active practice. And gratitude is one of those big pieces in that active practice. And there's actually research to back that up. It's kind of fun. There's a whole field of gratitude research. Mm, and, yeah. and so they concur what the, the philosophers of old uh, knew all this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yes, that gratitude is definitely an old teaching. <laughs> it goes way back and, way and back. very wide. <laughs> Well, this this has been amazing, Gabriella. I mean, it's really, you know, some of this I've heard, some of this I haven't heard. And it's really good to really think about, you know, pull apart what themes come up in transitions. Because your story is, you know, you, you were talking about burnout, which led you into transition. But, you know, there's so many even smaller transitions that will kick up guilt, that will kick up, you know, the feelings of grief. And so I think this was a wealth of information for people to digest. Any last thoughts, last words? I hope we talk more about this in the future, mm-hmm. but any last thoughts before we leave? Yeah, this is something that you and I talked about before we recorded was, do I have any other suggestions, like practical little tricks to deal with guilt? You know how I've dealt with guilt? initially, especially in the earlier years, I would sit in it like a pig in, you know what? Blank. (laughs) Pig in blank. Because making a decision based on guilt, reacting to the guilt and making a decision based on guilt is really rarely a good idea. And making a decision based on any kind of reaction is rarely a good idea. You got to give yourself time to breathe and to, to stop and really just like, is this a good time? No, let me stop and think about it. Or let me stop and just sit with it for a minute. As I told myself to try this, you know, whenever I feel guilty about something, just sit in it like a pig in blank. You know, you get the idea. And that's what I did. Whenever I felt guilty about just about anything, really, I would sit with the guilty feeling. It was uncomfortable. It felt icky. I did not like it, but I sat with it because I said, you know, at some point this will go away. And it did. So the first time I tried it, it took literally three days for the guilty feeling to finally go away. But it went away and it was such a release and relief. So then something else happened. I don't even remember what that is. And I felt guilty about that. You know, I felt guilty about this about everything. And so I sat in the guilt again. The next thing you know, instead of being three days, it was like two days et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got to the point where I would feel something, maybe a pang of guilt, and it would go away literally in seconds. Hmm. And it's like, wow, this is so cool. Imagine if you don't run away from an emotion, but really just Mm. sit with it for a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And see what happens. It will go away. Is that similar to when they say having a pity party? (laughs) Having a pity party where you would sit in the... the no, I'm just saying, like, it yeah. just made me think of that, you know, sitting in the pity for a minute, you know, for a minute. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that for a pity party, I would say put it on a clock. Give yourself five <laughs> minutes because <laughs> you could be there all day. I don't think it works for everything, to be honest, to, to sit in it because you could sit in pity all day and all week mm. and all month and all year. And so it's like, you know, you feel bad you had a rough day or, you know, something didn't turn out the way you want it to turn out. Or whatever the situation might be, and oh no, why, 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 why? Be in that for literally put it on your clock and set it for five minutes or three minutes or something like that. 
And then when the alarm goes off, it's like, okay, I'm done. Time to get back to next step. Because it's in the difficulty that you'll find the solution. The difficulty is what's going to give rise to your creativity. And so it's like, you know, don't shy away from it. Sometimes it's like, okay, this is your perfect opportunity to really start getting creative. So pity yourself for five minutes and then move on. Or sit in the guilt for five minutes. I mean, I really think yeah, that, that, that there's was, no distinction. Why yeah. is it different? Because you can stew in anger for years. You can stew in self-pity for years. So I don't think it works the same way for everything. Okay. But that was my experiment with guilt. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked. I remember a time where I was, I don't think I was having a pity party, but I remember I, one time I was upset about something and I was complaining. I think I was, it was some negative self-talk. And we were in the car mm-hmm. and you said, okay, you've got five minutes. And I said, what? <laughs> and you said, yeah. you've got five minutes. Go ahead, complain, talk about how bad you were at the event or whatever it was. You said, go ahead, you got five minutes and then we're complete. <laughs> <laughs> it actually worked for me. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to take my five minutes. <laughs> And then I was completely. You can't spend your life in the vent. You know, you can't. Life is too yeah. short. There's, there's the, come on now, you got things to do. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciated it. <laughs> you know, it was a All pleasure. Thank you. You were an absolutely masterful interviewer. And <laughs> uh, I hope that our audience and hopefully the one who actually made the request uh, gets a lot out of this. And for those who are having similar experiences that they're getting a lot out of this too. And thank you for your time and for this time together. I had a whole lot of fun and I hope you did too. And so thank you all listeners to this podcast and we will meet soon again. All right. Thank you. Go Doc Working. For life coaching on career challenges inside and outside of medicine, for creating healthy boundaries for work-life synergy, putting yourself back in the driver's seat of your life. You can schedule life coaching sessions with me, Gabriella Dennery, at docworking.com or by clicking the link below. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are docworking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.